This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 19th of September 2023 at home in Wicklow. And in it, I look at male desire, male sexual desire. And on the the darker side of things, I'm looking at this in the context of the Russell Brand uh, story that has broken in the last week and the sexual allegations that have been laid against him. Um, but I also look at this idea of male desire and particularly the idea of repressed male desire. Uh, I use the career of Terence Stamp as a stepping off point and specifically his film debut as a young man in the 1962 movie Billy Budd, which was a version of the Herman Melville short novel of the same name directed by Peter Ustinov and so I look at the specifically I, I spend a bit of time looking at that movie I talk a bit about Terence Stamp his own particular allure um, and how that kind of dynamic of suppressed uh, or repressed male sexual desire has been depicted in, in movies um, and particularly gay you know repressed gay uh, dynamics or repressed gay desire closeted male desire um and the one movie i I wanted to talk about as well and didn't just because it was i was kind of just full of thoughts about other things i did want to just briefly reference um terence stamp in john schlesinger's 1967 film of thomas hardy's novel far from the madding crowd and the dash he cut as Sergeant Troy, the extremely cocky, arrogant um, and quite immoral officer um, who seduces Julie Christie's uh, Bath... How do you pronounce her? For, how do you pronounce the character's name? Bathsheba? Bathsheba? Bathsheba, Bathsheba Everdeen, who is the, you know, the, the woman running her own farm and, you know, Sergeant Troy is one of three men who try to seduce her, claim her. Um, in the Schlesinger film, it's Peter Finch and Alan Bates who play the other uh, the other suitors. Uh, the Thomas Vinterberg version of that novel from 2015, so nearly six, nearly 50 years later, I think is really worth looking at as well, with uh, Kerry Mulligan as as Everdeen and. Um, some nice performances in that one from Michael Sheen and Matthias Schoenartz and is it I think it's Tom Sturridge who plays the officer in that but that's a really I thought it was a really good version of that but Terence Stamp in that movie um, if you're unsure of what his particular physical merits were he um, yeah he looks he looks great in Far From The Madding Crowd and I, I did want to mention that in the main body of the episode and didn't but there you go. I'm mentioning it now. Okay, so movies, sexual desire, male sexual desire, sexual transgressions, um, uh, and anything kind of connected to these these ideas is what I try to explore um, in the episode. So I hope you find time to listen. It's a bit of a longer one this week. Sometimes that happens when the the topic um, inspires a lot of a lot of thought. A lot of consideration, but um, I hope you enjoy it uh, nonetheless. Okay, I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind.
Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. You're very welcome. I hope this finds you well. I hope your week, your day, whatever, the last few moments, <laughs> if that's all you've got, if you've just founded some respite, I hope it's I hope it's going well for you. I hope you're sitting in a good spot, figuratively speaking, although maybe also literally. Anyway, here we are, another week down, another week done, stepping into a new moment. If you have pressed play, thank you so much for choosing this podcast. There's a lot of other stuff you could be listening to, and I'm very grateful if you chose mine over someone else's. It's good to have you here, and welcome back if you're a return listener to this thing that I do. It's not a show, it's a tell, and each week I have a wrangle, a wrestle, a contemplation, a peer into something connected to, largely speaking, wellness, resilience, coping, survival. It might be spurred by something in in the news, current affairs, politics. It could be sociological, philosophical, psychological. It could be a number of different things. But everything comes back to how do I make sense of this thing called life? How do I make sense of this negotiation with existence, with oneself? How do I keep putting that head above the parapet or keeping it above water? How, how, how? (laughs) And I don't always have answers. Sometimes I'm satisfied to ask the question and see where that line of inquiry leads me. I find that useful. I find that diverting, interesting, beneficial on some level. And I hope you do too. So without further ado, I, there were a couple of things that came up this week and they are indirectly connected, I suppose, or maybe not. Maybe I can make them more directly connected. But there were two things. One was I was listening to a movie podcast. Um, I was listening to um, The Rewatchables, that favoured movie podcast uh, that I find incredibly entertaining. And they had an old podcast on Oliver Stone's Wall Street and the English actor Terence Stamp came up and they were discussing him and I just, yeah, I just had a flash of, you know, many Terence Stamp moments. I thought about his career and one of his movies jumped out at me and I will go into that shortly. Um, so that's that's going to be one stepping off point discussing Terence Stamp and one particularly notable performance and I also want to, I don't want to say wade in, because that suggests I'm coming in with a big opinion, a big or with an opinion on it. Uh, but I do want to talk about the Russell Brand story that has broken in the last week. 
um, about uh, his well about allegations of sexual assault, rape, um, and you know that kind of thing. Um, seems different former sexual partners of his um, have come out and gone. You know, and have made, you know, and have made claims about his his conduct, how he treated them, and some of the things he did to them against their their will. Um, and yeah, I want to have I want to have a, a look at that as well. So, I suppose broadly speaking, today's episode is going to be looking at male desire. Um, yeah male desire sexual the male sexual appetite and um where that perhaps sits in the male mind and how it can teeter over into dark areas um and i'll I'll try I'll, i'll try and look at how that that is not necessarily an exclusively male experience. Um, I th- I certainly think, you know, sexual desire and you know sexuality um, can express itself in in anyone in a huge variety of ways, in consensual and non consensual contexts. Um, but mostly, I will be looking at. Yeah, at this particular area of male desire and maybe male sort of uh, sexual compartmentalization, because I I do think I think I've expressed this idea before. I do think that's a thing. There's something about where men uh, park sex in their mind. Um, I mean, I spoke last week about not wanting. <laughs> I mean, the, last week's episode was, you know, dedicated to the idea of avoiding monolithic thinking and not ascribing characteristics to every member of a particular uh, type or category. So I will be qualifying, you know, everything I'm saying by trying to reference my own experience. Uh, and referencing, you know, you know some of the things that I'll be talking about, and keeping it connected to those specific contexts, and you know, it, the discussion will be then more speculative. Uh, I will be, I won't be afraid to give my own opinion, um, but I just think it's it, it's you know it's healthy, it's healthy to talk about these things and try to speak about these things in unambiguous ways. So, why don't we start with, yeah, maybe I'll start with, maybe I'll start with the lighter end of it and have a look at Terence Stamp. So, Terence Stamp. (laughs) Terence Stamp, I was trying to remember when he first came on my radar and I tell you, it would have been. I would have seen him in Superman 2, which I, I didn't check what year that was. I think it was very early 80s, Superman 2, and he played General Zod. He was a pretty dark character. Um, and in fact, he's there in Superman, 
because he's one of the three conspirators. Um, there's a sort of a Boris Karloff looking figure and a very austere, dark haired woman. I can't remember the actress, but they are being tried in a sort of a, a court martial on um, on Superman's home planet, Krypton. Isn't it Krypton? At the start of Superman. And they are found guilty and they are, I remember being very chilled and a little bit freaked out by this as a kid when I saw Superman first because this uh, geometric shape is summoned once they're condemned and it comes in from outside the the court and uh, it's a you know, futuristic spacey court so it's kind of open plan I remember Gordon Jackson was one of the, uh, the, the the kind of the judges alongside Marlon Brando and this geometric kind of parallelogram that's sort of glassy and mirrored comes in kind of spins in from up above and descends on these three figures all dressed in black these kind of mutineers these 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 rebels um anarchists whatever and it just sort of envelops them and suddenly they're inside this what appears to be a two-dimensional parallelogram and they're inside it screaming in absolute terror and you see their faces up close and it spins off out into space and you hear their their kind of you know their their dissipating cries really very effective anyway little did we know little did we know that they would return they would return with a vengeance in superman 2 and terence stamp played general zod that's one of his great lines in superman kneel before zod now i don't think i knew at the time i don't think i mean i remember general zod but i don't think i knew it was terence stamp the next time I came across Terence Stamp and I was like, oh yeah, that's Terence Stamp, was in a sort of a teen cowboy movie called Young Guns, directed by Chris Columbus, if I recall correctly, from the late 80s, if not 1990. Um, I I loved that film. And it was basically the story of Billy the Kid, as played by Emilio Estevez. It featured his brother, Charlie Sheen. It also had Lou Diamond Phillips and Kiefer Sutherland. Um, and then, you know, f- you know, completing the gang of young outlaws was Casey Samasco and Dermot Mulroney. And in this version of the William Bonney story, these were young ne'er-do-wells who had been taken under the wing of a sort of gentrified cowboy, an Englishman, whose name I forget. I forget the character's name, but he runs a tight ship on his ranch and he's trying to improve the young guys and they have to take turns reading and improving themselves while running the farm. And that character was played by Terence Stamp with a sort of quiet authoritarian dignity and warmth and good humour. And the young men in his charge clearly had great regard for him and respected him and he is the victim of a of a really awful assassination 
by the henchmen of the villain of the piece played by Jack Palance. Um, and it's a great little revenge movie. And the kind of the Jack Palance is the corrupt rancher who's like basically going to do what he wants and to take over what he wants. And he sees uh, Terence Stamp's character, whose first name I remember was John. He sees him as a threat and doesn't like what he's doing with the young guys. And Jack Palance is great. He's great. he's a brilliant villain. Um, but the whole movie becomes this kind of, you know, the system against the young guys and they become the renegade outlaws. But we know that they've been wronged. So they have, you know, they're, they're righteous. And it's a great little, it's a great little movie. And it actually stands up quite well. There's some great action sequences, some very nasty killings. And Emilio Estevez is the live wire Billy the Kid. Um, in what I thought then, and, and still appreciate now, I thought it was a great, uh, you know, great performance, just full of sort of manic madness um, and, you know, pathological, uh, a pathological disregard for life. But I thought, I thought in particular, I thought Kiefer Sutherland um, and Lou Diamond Phillips possibly the two coolest guys on the planet at that time and Lou Diamond Phillips had a storyline you know he was the sort of the wronged American Indian and he had that kind of burden uh you know the, you know the, the the blood burden of his people that he carried with him um it's a very funny scene where they all take peyote and get high off their heads and are chanting and rambling or reciting poetry <laughs> but Terrence Stamp is kind of the the the, the moral centre of the movie, uh, even though he is dispatched very early on. And I just remember, oh man, Terrence Stamp, what a what a cool guy. Now, Terrence Stamp, the first thing you'd have to say, he's always been a very remarkable looking man with very distinct features, you know, um, amazing cheekbones and piercing blue eyes. And a certain chilliness to his 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 aspect, but I mean, at that stage, I think in Young Guns he was probably my age now, but he looked older because I think he went grey quite early, um, so he looked like an older man. Um, but eventually, later in life, I came across his film debut, and that's the movie I really wanted to talk about. He was in a movie called Billy Budd from 1962. And Billy Budd was a movie version directed by Peter Ustinov, starring Peter Ustinov also, uh, based on a Herman Melville short novel that was incomplete at the time of Melville's death, but was completed later. Um, First completed by his wife or his widow, and then later in life by someone else once more extensive notes had been found and was completed in a more satisfactory way and I remember seeing Billy Budd I've only ever seen it once but when the guys on the rewatchables were talking about Terrence Stamp um, on that Wall Street episode I just felt they're not really doing Terrence Stamp justice Um, and maybe he was lesser known in the States than over in this part of the world but I felt you know, Terrence Stamp had a long, long acting career before he came to um, Wall Street. If Wall Street was 1987 or 1988, 
um, Billy Budd was 1962. I think he was only 24 at the time and he was cast out of acting school. And my, I remember seeing Billy Budd and it, had a huge, it made a huge impression on me. And what I remember from it mostly was the the intense sexual subtext, which was a gay subtext. And basically it's the story of this young sailor, an unschooled, naive young sailor who's recruited onto uh, a British warship in the late 1700s. And he's an innocent in the world and he has a, a shock of sort of blonde curls and he just has a way about him that is disarmingly innocent and lacking in cynicism and just blithely positive and accepting of the world around him and initially the you know his fellow crew members and even the superior officers officers they're sort of bemused by him but he's so naturally and effortlessly charming that he, he wins everybody over with his innate good nature and his innate beauty is part of is part of the part of the dynamic of, of, of what he brings to things and there's one person on the ship the is he the master of arms or the quartermaster who is utterly confronted by this cherubic being and that is that that character is played by Robert Ryan the American actor and played with uh, what I remember as a, a tremendously angry sexual repression and a sort of a palpable self-loathing and uh, a gleeful sadism and he is brutal in the punishments that he meets out or has ordered to be meted out on crew members who have you know failed in their duties and there's at least one brutal flogging that everyone has to bear witness to and robert ryan is just can barely suppress his enjoyment i don't want to say arousal that might be pushing it too far but you know, at the, at the at the at the crew the crewman's kind of plight, but what I you know what I remembered from the movie was just this tension between Billy Budd and Robert Ryan, as Billy Budd's not you know his nature to lean towards life, to lean towards connection, to lean towards the possibility of of a good outcome brings him into direct conflict with Robert Ryan's character. Uh, Claggart is his name. And I just remember those scenes between them where Claggart is clearly, clearly wrestling with his, his desire and wrestling with what he, what he's feeling and the physical impact on him by being in proximity to this beautiful young man with the wide open nature the beautiful face who has won over the entire ship uh, with his natural charm and Robert Ryan Claggart 
finds it insufferable and basically plots you know plots to, to to find a way to get rid of Billy Budd to have him kicked off the ship or court-martialed um, and so ultimately what happens is uh, he accuses Billy Budd of being a mutineer and Billy Budd it, 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 with a sense of great indignation lashes out and strikes Ryan who falls very unfortunately um, against something and dies and so the film becomes the story of well is Billy Budd innocent when we've had this the whole ship knows that he's been antagonised relentlessly by Claggart and brought out this even more intense darkness and vindictiveness in Claggart and everyone knows that Billy Budd is a good kid a good guy um, and Peter Ustinov's it, it, Peter Ustinov plays the, the captain of the ship who out of his own sense of uh, duty to queen and country to the crown um, what, 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 I'm trying to remember who was in who was uh, it was a king or queen at that time in England but he feels the letter of the law must be observed and ultimately um, Billy Budd uh, spoiler alert ultimately Billy Budd is uh, executed and Herman Melville was fundamentally trying to show the impossibility of remaining innocent in the world and how, you know, the innocent and the naive and the pure will be punished by the the streak of wickedness and cruelty and cynicism that is out there waiting to pounce. Um, and... Yeah, it, it doesn't take much of a reading to go. Billy Budd is the Christ-like figure, who's bringing his you know his purity of soul, his sincerity of soul, to to elevate the entire crew, to bring this kind of grace to the entire crew, just by being among them, which is a very Christ-like analogy, and of course ends in his execution again the Christ-like analogy, and again famously Billy Budd's last words are to um i can't remember if it's here's to captain veer uh it's like it's a it's a salutation to the captain who's condemned him um you know so basically you know forgive them they you know they know what they do again the christ-like thing so i don't know if melville was commenting on the futility of uh of living with that very pure version of you know noble christianity open-hearted self-sacrificing um are just looking at the christ figure um are just using it you know in an allegorical way but that's effective in its own right and there's no question about the 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 malice and the kind of the venal nature of robert ryan's character claggart but in the film, and I don't know, I don't know what Peter Ustinov's um, sexual leaning was. I think it's been speculated that he was gay, uh, and certainly he had characters throughout, you know, in his filmography where he he played with that identity. I think I feel in Spartacus, he was sort of a, a lascivious slave owner. Um, but in any case, yeah, you know, whatever. That, that's you know, maybe that's neither here nor there. I certainly felt watching it 
and I probably haven't seen it in over 20 years. I certainly felt watching it that it was very obvious, like the gay subtext was screaming off the screen. And it was, I found it very affecting. I found Terence Stamp's character hugely sympathetic and his kind of his sweetness, his beauty, his innocence um, was just brilliantly conveyed by, I mean, again, you know, <laughs> that was his that was his movie debut his first his first go and i mean what a go and it's funny because peter o'toole had a similar thing in uh, lawrence of arabia the blonde blue-eyed beautiful man um and of course he had his uh awful sexual confrontation when captured by the turks um sort of what halfway or two-thirds through the film and thereafter in Lawrence of Arabia, I've spoken about this before, thereafter in Lawrence of Arabia, his innocence is gone. His idealism is gone and it awakens a bloodlust in him because I think the suggestion is, is that he was raped by the Turkish officers when he was captured. And he has a desire for revenge that he can't control. And next time he goes into battle, he takes no prisoners whatsoever and it's a it's a real it's a key turning point in lawrence of arabia and a, a you know a, yeah a chilling moment in his character arc where he emerges from this kind of post-traumatic um state um and his recovery state and is like i am gonna destroy the world um so what that made me think about and thinking about Billy Budd and thinking about male desire and I suppose that that is a particular depiction of I don't know if I'm being unjust in describing it as a trope of homosexual repression the closeted or repressed gay man who is full of self-loathing because he can't cope with his his feelings of desire for other men who is tormented with with guilt because society has said this is wrong or you know religious leaders have said this is wrong this is immoral this goes against god uh this is unnatural um and it's funny i was thinking about robert ryan and that performance um, and Robert Ryan was good. He was good at playing heavies, you know, in movies. But I was thinking, I, I, I was recalling the the David Thompson quote I shared a few months ago when I was talking about Richard Gere's filmography, and that great quote that David Thompson used about Richard Gere in uh, Pretty Woman, describing him as a pasha tolerating his own pleasure, and in uh, Billy Budd, Robert Ryan is completely completely in in intolerant of his of his kind of of his displeasure like his displeasure is his desire for billy bud which he cannot express and it makes him furious and makes him just want to you know eradicate um billy bud completely destroy him get rid of him obliterate him so he doesn't have to face his own frustrated desire um which, again, as I say, is that just something that is a trope of storytelling, 
of how gay men or repressed gay men have been depicted um but i don't just think it applies to to gay closeted gay men i think it's a often a very successful depiction of sexual repression of someone who is in denial about their sexual desire who's completely uncomfortable with their sexuality who is often um in a role of power in a role of official service who may be tethered to a a greater institution who may be tethered to a religious institution um and i tell you what character comes to mind and again i've discussed this movie before as well if, if only in passing but the um the i can't remember what his actual title was but in the, the the Walt Disney film from the mid '90s, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the the he's not a bishop, but he's you know he's high up in the church, and he's there in Notre Dame as you know the highest you know holding the highest religious office, and there's an extraordinary sequence in that movie which is surprisingly dark, considering it was in no way was it not a kids movie, but there's a this extraordinary sequence. Where this figure, um, oh God, it's driving me mad now trying to think what the character's name was, but he is in absolute sexual anguish and moral, of course this is a huge part of it, the moral anguish, because his sexual appetite has been absolutely set on fire by the, the gypsy girl dancing um in the in you know in the square in front of Notre Dame, uh voiced by Demi Moore, if I recall correctly, um in 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 the movie in question. But there's a sequence where he is just you know absolutely in torment morally and you know and sexually over what he is unable to express. And again it gets channeled into you know, his anger and his mistreatment of Quasimodo um, and the, the, you know, his manipulation, his emotional manipulation and cruelty as he expresses it towards Quasimodo. And again, it, it's about control and suppression and repression. Um, and it's vicious and nasty and very, very dark. What is that character's name? Anyway, who cares? But you, you get the idea. So that's definitely a type. It doesn't just have to be in the world of closeted homosexuality. But to give another couple of examples, um, I think famously in Sam Mendes's American Beauty from 1999, again, another movie I have not watched in a very long time, which is, well, for me, it's almost literally half a lifetime ago because I was, I was 25 when I, I saw that in 99. And that ends famously with Chris Cooper's military man, the next door neighbor to uh, our protagonist, Kevin Spacey's character, who Chris Cooper has come to believe is gay and is getting sexual favors from Chris Cooper's son, played by the young Wes Bentley in his breakout performance. Um, And Chris Cooper, it's clear, is wrestling with his own repressed longing and his own repressed sexual desire and it ends very darkly 
when he comes to Kevin Spacey at the end of the movie with a gun in his hand. Um, so again, like that's another example of, you know, male desire. I I can't handle this feeling I have. I can't have the object of desire. Therefore, I will try to destroy the object of desire. So that will, in theory, cancel out my my frustrated sexual longing. Um, so we'll come back to that point maybe a little bit later. Um, another movie I thought of, again, with a dark ending, is Alan Parker's Midnight Express from, oh, I'm going to struggle to find the year, but mid-70s, I guess, late 70s, um, which is based on the true story of a young American who's caught trying to smuggle uh, hash bars of cannabis resin out of is it turkey again and then he goes through hell in this brutal turkish prison brad davis playing the young man in question john hurt in a very memorable role in that movie is randy randy quaid's in that movie as well isn't he but at the end of that movie brad davis the young american is brought to the kind of head warden's office who we've seen to be a very brutal sadistic man and it's clear that he wants to be sexually gratified by brad davis um and that has a brutal ending as well which leads then to brad davis's successful escape but again you're getting that very um dark expression of of male desire and of male sexual assault and moral compromise um with and you know and those scenes those sequences in movies have always they've always jumped out at me because they're they're confronting they're scary they always they always feel to be quite true they always feel yeah i, I you know i believe this is out there um and they're you know they're off you know they're they're maybe not so much in american beauty you know the other examples like from lawrence of arabia um midnight express billy bud the the sort of the emotional the emotional cost and the emotional the emotional stakes are they just feel very very high um and then when there's a a power imbalance um there's an extra level of brutality there's an extra level of injustice there's an extra level of inevitability um and that would have played out very clearly in you know in billy budd um in lawrence of arabia because he's a captive uh, in midnight express again a prisoner and a prison officer um and again to my kind of younger mind i just always found these i found these scenarios absolutely you know fascinating um because there was just a there was a real there, there was always a tragic there was a tragic component to it you know the helplessness of the victim the innocence perhaps the the the, the brokenness of the the perpetrator um that that was never lost on me as well there's something really perverted and twisted and 
you know, I use the word inevitable um, again because they are just locked in in that place and they will act out um, in ways that will result in in sexual gratification or the removal of what provokes that desire. Um, yeah, so so there you go. That's my um, that comes from thinking about Terence Stamp and remembering Billy Budd. Billy Budd, um, again, if you're familiar with it, you're probably aware that it was made into an opera in later years by Benjamin Britten. I think a, a popular, successful, and often performed opera. Um, I've seen clips of that online. Some really impressive looking stagings, but. Um, yeah, one to go and find, one to one to check out, and that cast in Billy Budd is sort of a who's who of great British character actors of the time, and you know you run through the kind of the class system, of course, on any ship of that time because it's officers from the gentry and then everybody else, uh, kind of common men. Um, so some nice actors in that: John Neville, for example, David McCallum of Sapphire and Steel fame. <laughs> That's a that's a that's a bit of a dated reference. He was well, he was in one of those American shows, wasn't he? Um, was he in a CSI, or was there one? Uh, I'm trying to think. Was there one with John Harmon? Uh, I'm not sure now. I'm on I'm on I'm on shaky ground. Um, the man from Uncle, of course, David McCallum. The great Ray McAnally, the great Irish actor Ray McAnally, is also in Billy Budd, 1962. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Well worth checking out. Um, if anything else comes up movie-wise, I'll, uh, I'll throw it back in. But I'm going to, I'm going to jump ahead then to, to this current news story. Um, I mean, I'm hesitating to use the word controversy uh, because I don't think it is a controversy. Um about Russell Brand and the the allegations that have been laid against him. Um, The story taken at a remove, it's just another highly successful uh, public male figure in the world of, in the world of celebrity. Um, You know, in, in, in the world of, you know, extremely high profile uh the world of you know of movies of tv uh, of pop culture um so a very successful man in that world being accused of uh extreme sexual impropriety um sexual assault and and rape so if you just look at that is there anything is there any part of that that you, that makes that that you know is there any part of that that you hear and go this is unprecedented or this is really shocking or this is so surprising no there's not um there absolutely isn't and then you go to the specific and go okay russell brand um look i don't i don't have a huge i don't i have no stake in russell brand i've never been a particularly a big you know a fan of his um he's got you know he's got that type of you know abrasive personality that i I don't find that interesting or funny um you know i've certainly felt i've always been 
broadly aware of what he's been doing at any given time uh, publicly that is um and you know seeing him in a couple of different movies um and the you know, tv appearances i know uh, he's had a hugely success a hugely successful youtube profile uh, or channel over the last few years i'm aware he's leaned in a little bit to uh, conspiracy theories and presented himself as a bit of a truth sayer um you know in a world of ever more unreliable news sources um he does seem to have aligned himself with some dubious thinking um again i'm i'm not a i'm not a fan of the conspiracy theory uh, of of conspiracy theories in general i'm not a fan of conspiracy theorists in general i i'm very suspicious of that form of exceptionalism uh, which is what i think it is in a lot of cases um it's a way people you know i think a lot of people are are attracted to that because it gives them a, a sense of control it gives them a sense of um reduced helplessness or hopelessness um because they feel like they know what's really going on but i i mean you know conspiracy theorists are generally not that relaxed or chilled out and i mean they probably argue well if you're relaxed and chilled out you're just a you know a, a, a dupe a sucker you're just a sheep <laughs> you've just taken the you've taken the opium uh uh you've you know you've, you've drunk the kool-aid and you're just a a blind follower um you know I, you know if that's what you know they can think that if they like i think there's there, you know it's not a zero-sum game you're not one thing or the other and that's it i think you can step outside that and go yeah of course of course there are machinations behind the scenes that would not thrill us we know the people who are meant to be better fail constantly we know there's endless compromise we know there's corruption we know there's moral failing we know there's extreme cynicism and dishonesty um but but what can you do in a way i mean that that sounds that sounds like a total cop-out what can you do i mean i think i try to remain very clear about what i feel is a you know is a useful contribution to the world you know if you're if you're someone who thinks about things a lot as i do and is often concerned about the state of the world as i am um i try to remain clear about well you know what what do i think i can do that might be of use <laughs> it's as simple as that so i'm under no illusions as to i'm going to start a movement or i'm going to go and change things or i just kind of go well, look this is my contribution the podcast is my contribution the blog was my contribution if i get in a classroom or in front of people to teach or facilitate or instruct that's where i make a contribution if i'm you know performing um or acting you know i hope that's where i can make a contribution if i write that's where i make a contribution and it's you know to, to name it it's trying to put something out into the world that's that's thoughtful 
that is that is 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 tolerant in in you know in the right areas that is intolerant in other areas that you know challenges hypocrisy you know dishonesty whatever and it's it you know i'm already i'm I'm already stopping myself in my tracks because it's not necessarily about preaching which is a very different thing or pontificating um or being pious or moral or moralistic I mean, there's a difference between there's a difference between being moral and moralistic. Um, but yeah, you know, this is it. This is what I can do. I can talk. I can think, and I can talk, and I can try and articulate these things and present joined up thinking, um, and keep it in this, I hope, relatively balanced space. Because that's what I crave. I like balance. I like order. Um, And I think that helps the equilibrium at large. And so my philosophy ultimately is, you know, all the little things add up to the big thing. That's it. So if this is my little thing, and that's all I consider it, it's just my little thing. (laughs) That's my contribution. And maybe someone else goes, hey, okay, that's good. And they might have a conversation based on something that they hear here or something I've written or something I've said or whatever. And then that's another little thing. And all the little things can add up to a big thing. It's very simple. Maybe that's incredibly facile and naive, but that I have that in me. <laughs> that's where my optimism lives. That's where my idealism lives. That's where my positivity lives, in those places. Um, You know, I spoke last week about I'm not seeking the apex experience. Little by little, fighting the good fight, (laughs) one moment at a time. Um, And let's not get too hysterical. Okay, that's a a digression. I apologise. So, let's go back to brand. Let's go back to brand. So... My feeling here is I'm not surprised these allegations I've, I've read um, I've read a couple of different accounts of what certain you know of, of, of what the women in question have said and have reported to have happened and you know before reading them I thought you know is this does this feel right? You know, is you know, is this a bit of a hatchet job? Is is someone coming for him? Because he's been very outspoken in a lot of areas, um, um, and I was a little bit hmm. But when I read the allegations, they seemed to just make they just seemed to be very believable, extremely believable, um, quite comprehensive accounts of his his behaviour um, and his. Uh, you know, his 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 complicity or accountability is you know his own acknowledgement of his complicity his own acknowledgement of his accountability it seems to be included in at least one of those reports um and yeah you just come away and go oh okay yeah there's another guy just going after what he wants and being uncaring of of how he gets it or who he gets it from and and yes i am talking specifically about you know his kind of sexual gratification 
And it seems in his defense, you know, he's denied these allegations and said everything was consensual. Um, and he still said, look, he's been very open and honest in the past about his um, former promiscuity. I don't know if that's still part of his lifestyle. I mean, I've no zero judgment on that. Um, again, you know, the whole consensual idea is central to my non-judgment. Um, but it's it's a, like I think this is you know this is an area of of huge concern for you know for 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 for, you know, for women of course for you know if they're the victims of this behavior on an ongoing basis um but this area of male desire oh you know we, we read we've we've you know we, we've been exposed to a lot of different accounts of this kind of behavior from different uh male figures um in recent years of course a lot of stuff connected to the me too movement um different accounts um in fact i read there was a there was a, a, a news story yesterday about the the death in prison of oh i don't want to get his name wrong but i think it's barry barry bennett is that what his name was he was a football coach in england a scout who routinely abused young boys in his care aspiring footballers um and was finally sentenced uh, and sentenced and sent to prison about seven or eight years ago um, and he died I think he was only in his late 60s um, now I'm not equating Russell Brand's transgressions with Barry I think it's Barry Bennett I'm sorry if I've got that wrong he was a, a scout for uh, Manchester City Football Club amongst others and yeah, there, there there have been some horrible accounts of his behaviour and the impact his his actions had on you know the young men in his charge. Some of whom became um, you know high level successful footballers, but were tormented by the the impact of being abused. Um, I mean that that stuff is it's 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 depressing, and the i mean this is this is the kind of corollary to these always there's a corollary to these stories that you know the thing that runs side by side is how how many blind eyes were turned, how many people looked the other way, how many people suspected but didn't say, how many people knew but didn't say um because around successful people there are always um you know there are always structures there are structures to you know to maintain the the success to maintain the image to maintain pardon the pun the brand um and there must be people close who know what's going on or suspect um and you only have to you know scratch the surface of abuse within the catholic church and catholic organizations and institutions to know how an entire institution can look the other way and do a pontius pilot on it and wash their hands um and what like what's so so you know my next thought there naturally is what's at stake 
what needs to be protected? I mean, the Catholic Church, there was huge wealth, there was huge property, there was huge moral and social and political influence, depending on what part of the world they were. And that's what they were protecting. Um, and protecting, you know, like the, the tentacles of that protection. You know, this dark, dark entity at the heart of the corruption and the hypocrisy uh, within the Catholic Church and the lengths they went to to protect these predators, you know, in these, you know, in tiny parishes um, and districts and church, um, you know, prefectures or whatever all around the world. It's, it's astonishing when you think about it. So, but you can understand what's being protected. But then when you get, when you get like an individual, because, you know, you know Russell Brand, for example, is not an institution. The, the footballing scout I referred to before, he was not an institution. Now, he was part of a, a culture um, and a larger system. Um, but, yeah, like Russell Brand is, is one guy. Um, now, I know he's a very successful guy, writer, actor, comedian, wellness advocate, I gather. I hadn't quite picked up on that. I mean, I know Chiara, my wife, has one of his books, uh, which is, I think, fundamentally a, a kind of a treatise on addiction and how we habituate ourselves to certain behaviours. Um, now, I don't know in Russell Brand's mind if he's like well yeah i'm an, I'm an addict that's part of my personality and sex addiction i don't know i i've never heard him refer to himself as a sex addict i'm not again i haven't followed him that closely um but yeah like i wonder you know who was protecting him i wonder what his persona is like behind the scenes because I certainly feel he's always presented himself um, as quite an authentic person. Like that, that is part of his persona. You know, I'm just a guy, and I've, I've you know, I've been an addict. I've dealt. I've, you know, I've tried to deal my, de- my I've tried to deal with my demons um, in a very open way, and certainly he's been very open about talking about that part of his life. I've always felt inclined to acknowledge and applaud that part of his journey. Um, but this part of his journey is is less less worthy of applause, to say the least. And it what it's what it's doing for me is it, it raises this question for me, which I think I think I've touched on this before. And you know, I'm going to tether this back to you know to Billy Budd. Um, and maybe tether it back to American Beauty and maybe tether it back to Lawrence of Arabia and the other movies I referenced. But this idea of of the male compartmentalization of sex, that sex lives in its own discrete place. So maybe in the male mind, a man can be and this is now this is just me speaking, this is my opinion. But a man can be kind of very um you know functional, um balanced, uh you know, moral, if you want if we want to use that word, upstanding. <laughs> I mean these are very loaded words. Um 
and let's use you know the biggest inverted commas word of all time normal in all these different areas of his life and there are no reasons for concern just a normal guy in all his normal mundane completely boring imperfections and yet in his sexual mind his sexual being his sexual self something lurks there that given permission or if not permission freedom or the person you know given the sense of freedom slash i will not be caught if i do this that that man will give full vent to the range of his his desires um now i'm not going to put labels on the the moral implication the moral implications of those desires because within consent you know within a consensual context do what you want a consensual adult context do what you want that's just part of human expression it's human desire it's you know it's 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 healthy natural again natural in inverted commas um sexuality and between consenting adults one two three four however many you know go your hardest that's that's your freedom as as an adult you know do what you will with your body and someone else's body if they're on board too and that exists that's all out there um but here's the thing i my uncle my uncle <laughs> speaking of sexual deviance no my uncle frequently sends me articles and others he's a, he's a very um a very you know busy emailer um hi brian in cyprus i don't think you ever listen to my podcast but i'll name i'll, I'll shout out i'll give you a shout out anyway so my uncle brian is always sending emails often connected to the worlds of art and the arts and performance and literature uh movies and often politics geopolitics stuff to do with ireland um so you'll find articles you know, typically from the London Review of Books, the Paris Review, the New York Times, um, the Guardian. And I'll get an email and it'll just be, uh, you know, a link to an article or a recommendation or it'll be the, you know, article in its entirety. Um, and I don't I don't read them all. In fact, I'd read, I'd say, a, a tenth, yeah, if even that. But I'll always look. I'll always look and see what they are because they are often of interest to me and i'm happy to be directed to something like that but he sent me one just the other day and i read it and something in it really really jumped out at me um let me just see if i can i can find it here so this was an article um written by a female writer jerine tan if i remember correctly um from what was it from let me see what it was from sorry it was from dun 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 oh no it doesn't say what it's from oh no it does new york times under a series from the new york times called modern love 
The title of the article was called Pinned Under the Bodies of Men. And ultimately, it's the story of uh, this woman's writing about a couple of... She references two different experiences. Uh, one was more a relationship than an experience, but they both involved being... Um, involved kind of transgressive sexual behaviour, uh, herbing the victim of that behaviour um, against her will um, from two you know, different men in her life um at, at, you know in her younger younger life and the kind of the trauma that she carried with her how that trauma of being powerless drove her towards martial arts and self-defense and the joy she got from that the joy of feeling if it comes to it i will be able to defend myself i will be able to inflict pain i will be able to get revenge um and it'll be righteous and justified. It's quite a nice little article. It's interesting. And then the you know the the, the upshot of it is is that you know she was in a relationship with a guy very happily in love. In fact, I'm not sure if it might even be her husband. And he is also doing martial arts, a different martial art. And they decide to go away together for a week and practice each other's martial arts in different training centers. And in one of her first sessions with her husband or boyfriend. She finds herself pinned to the ground and is suddenly aware of his his strength, his masculine strength and fitness and power in that context. And initially she's freaked out, but ultimately she is sort of has this sort of, uh, you know, epiphany. Um, where she realized, oh, this is, you know, this is positive. This is a really positive male power in the body of the, the man I love and trust and who's been so caring of me and helped me negotiate my trauma. And she sort of manages to purge the, you know, the, the psychic memory and the, you know, her sort of instinct to recoil or go into, you know, high, highly adrenalized state. And so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a nice little article. It's, you know, it's, you know, she shares like a lot of her personal stuff and that's all fine. But she speaks about midway through the article, she refers to dabbling with, um, you know, uh, you know, bondage and sadomasochism, you know, in a sexual, you know, consensual sexual context as a younger woman and going to a club and, she had this, I'm just going to quote directly from the article. So she was in one of these clubs and she says, when in a dark corner of a club with no warning, a stranger quickly wrenched my shoulder out of its socket and reset it, or so he claimed. I was finally slowed by not shock, but sadness. And now this is the line that jumped out at me. And it's absolutely, I thought, oh yeah, wow. She said, how casually... How calmly violence comes to the most unremarkable of men. That's one of the most powerful things I've read in a very long time. That just jumped out at me. Um, And I was like, yeah, wow. And I think written from the perspective of a woman with direct experience of encountering that impulse or instinct in men um 
I was like, okay. And, and, you know, and again, that's her experience. I'm not, I'm not, this is not a total, I'm not going to, I'm not going for this broad validation of, oh my God, all men, um, you know, have the potential, you know, have, you know, that this violence lies in every man, in spite of what I just said about that, you know, the, the, you know, the potential of that lurking in, I think, some men, and maybe it's many men, I don't know. Um, but that line, how casually, how calmly violence comes to the most unremarkable of men, it's kind of fascinating. And it's, it is, of course, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an indictment of men. Um, you know, it's not necessarily an indictment of all men. She, it's an observation. It's, a, it's an observation of hers, born out of her lived experience. Um, and I think that's it. I think that's a huge, I think that's a huge topic, actually. And certainly, if you look at any article or hear any discussion about the dangers of the ubiquity and proliferation of pornography, pornographic imagery, and porno, you know, the kind of performed, the, the, the performed behaviors of a lot of pornographic content, there's a lot of barely disguised violence um, towards women. Um, and I guess the you know, one of the biggest fears out there is is this completely coloring the minds of of young men? Is it completely coloring and distorting their their sexual appetites and their understanding of again inverted commas normal sexual behavior? Um, uh, and one of the things that's most commonly cited is is choking, and this behavior of you know women being choked during sex um in fact i was listening to i referred to this last week i was listening to um roisin ingle interviewing Anne enright on on the, the women's podcast from the irish times and that's part of a storyline in Anne enright's new book the wren the wren which i was very happy to receive as a gift from uh chiara from my wife last week i was yeah so I, I, I've only read the first couple of pages. I'm very excited to get into it. Um, I was laughing. And then I was presenting the thinking you know, of a man uh, in a relationship early in that book. And um, <laughs> his negotiation, now it was written in quite a comic way, his negotiation of his sexual desire. Um, but I was laughing out loud at her. Get, trying to get inside the male brain and the, you know the, the concealing of an erection, which I thought was very funny. Um, but yeah, look. In in any case, to 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 come back to, you know, to come back to this rather um, unpleasant, uh, you know, unpleasant topic of of male violence um, in a sexual context of the darker side of male desire, of what I think, what I think is a sort of, as I say, this compartmentalization of male sexual desire 
that men can square off and go, that lives in its own private box. And I can just be absolutely, there's, you know, again, to borrow the, 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 the word from um, that, that, that female writer's article, um, you know, in every other way, I'm unremarkable. But maybe all of my, all of my, you know, repressed stuff comes out given the first opportunity. Um, and so, when I say, you know, when I say that, what you know, what make what it makes me think about is, you know, how any of us doesn't matter if you're male or female, but how any of us, you know, have to negotiate our sexual our sexual lives as individuals our sexual uh impulses our sexual sort of psyche um it's it is up to each each of us as individuals i think to, to you know to work that out and get you know negotiate it contextualize it understand it um and you know and and you know, it has to live in the real world as well. And hope, you know, hopefully within, you know, within a consensual relationship, that's where it can live happily um, and play out in, you know, in a healthy, functional, uh, gratifying, satisfying way. I mean, that's, that's certainly how I conceive of sex. Um, it's not meant to come at the expense of another. And it's not just meant to be... Um, it's not just meant to be something that is satisfied by, you know, again, I'm speaking from like a male perspective. It's not something that is just meant to be satisfied by female sexual utility, which I think is, is out there as an unspoken idea. And maybe it is a spoken idea. Um, and certainly the way, you know, the, the, you know, the female sexual form um, is presented relentlessly across media Um that is like that's the message that is just being battered into our heads constantly that female sexual utility and availability is the number one um (laughs) the number one sort of desirable trait or the number one thing to recommend about women and it's um you know it's it's disastrous you know if if you come away from that and go, oh yeah, that's that's the truth. That's how I see women. Um, like it's just so extraordinarily reductive and unhelpful and ill-informed and warped um, and damaging. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's um, yeah. It it's like it has to be challenged in a way that is about you know education, that's about self examination, that's about understanding, um, and that's about you know avoiding the pitfalls of repression, um, and avoiding the pitfalls of the resentment and the anger that can accompany repression. Um, the um, yeah, the because that I think that is an extraordinarily powerful 
and destructive energy uh, that, that lives in people and that I suppose can live in a society um, and I, I, you know, I don't know I don't know what the you know I don't know what the larger answer is to that question I come back to my philosophy expressed earlier about you know the little things add up um, but I think I, I certainly think you know, being unafraid to speak about these things and talk about them in an open way. This comes back to part of last week's episode again about, you know, not feeling threatened, not feeling I have, you know, you, you know, one has to protect oneself or insulate oneself before they, before they can speak about these things, not coming with the ax in your hand, with the weapon already out, open, ready to go. Um, but, looking at it in yeah looking at it sort of you know transparently um and you know accepting that you know of of course there's going to be huge emotion around this especially when you know you read about you know uh you know sexual assaults and rapes and sexual transgressions and people in power doing things to people with with less power um and i know the the disingenuous among us might argue oh well what you know what is power really um well celebrity celebrity is a form of power don't kid yourself that it's not you know it's status it's social standing um it's 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 access it can be a golden ticket uh you might want to you know hitch a ride there's power there um i mean yeah, once you're in a position of influence like that, um, you know, it's there is power that can be exploited. There's no question about that. Um, and power that can be wielded. So I don't know. I mean, I you know, I suspect, you know, if I was to be, you know, pressed to look at the Russell Brand situation, like I suspect, you know, in his mind maybe at the time, maybe now, um, there would have been a lot of self-justification. Um, I think he would have contextualized it um, in a very Russell Brandy kind of way. Um, you know, I'm just being me, I'm just being honest. Um, you know, there was, there was a way that he presented himself um, in an almost, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is here, but do it, you know not a feat but you know there's a there, i always felt there's a sort of a slightly kind of you know there's a sort of a femininity to how russell brand carries and presents himself um he's not typically you know alpha male in any sort of you know gender normative way you know not butch um i mean verging on I mean, verging on gender fluid is—is is that am I mad? That's my perception of him, um, and yeah, I just have a feeling. That, you know, that's my instinct. Is that like he would have had a very self-justifying frame around those acts, um, you know, if they're true. And again, I'm not saying if they're true to to undercut anything that I've said, but. You know, in theory, we're we're going to go with the idea of innocent until proven guilty. But the allegations that you know the accounts that I read, they seem extremely um, 
plausible and believable so um so yeah um okay so look i think i think that's it for today that's probably enough enough about all of that there probably were some other avenues i could have gone down and explored um do you know what i wanted to do and i didn't i wanted to read you the the bosley crowther um the bosley crowther review of billy bud from 1962 so why did i why don't, why don't i finish with that okay just so we're not stuck in the world of sexual allegations um i found this very interesting review it's very positive it's a very positive review bosley crowther if you don't know uh was the film critic for the new york times for 27 years um born in 1905 died in 1981 i think and uh, just one of those big um you know high profile movie critics and he you know you go back and read you know if you're looking for movie reviews from the mid 20th century and earlier bosley crowther he will come up again and again and um i just thought this article was quite this review was quite interesting just for his 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 language style almost declamatory as if it was written to be read on you know on radio or something um you think like this is the 60s when you know because a cultural change is imminent in the states but i'll finish with this today so this is bosley crowther's 1962 review of the 1962 movie peter ustinov's uh, filmed version of Herman Melville's Billy Budd. Here we go. The classic conflict of good and evil, drawn in Herman Melville's Billy Budd, with the story of a pure young British sailor tormented by a vicious master at arms, is firmly battened down and rendered ship shape in a splendid film based upon the book and on a recent play put together from it. The film opened yesterday at Cinema One and Cinema Two. Right out in the sky vaulted open and on the decks of a sturdy square-rigged ship, a fine adornment of His Majesty's Navy back at the end of the 18th century, is played the better part of this drama of the hectoring of the innocent young tar by his monstrously warped superior, the substance of the tale. Honest wind blowing through the rigging and ocean waves slapping the ship impart to this motion picture rendering a convincing tang of the sea. In a beautiful black and white production supervised by Peter Ustinov, who also directed the picture and plays the third leading role of Captain Veer, the physical setting of the drama is flawlessly achieved. The all-male participants in it are roundly and handsomely performed. Terence Stamp, a new English actor with a sinewy, boyish frame and the face of a Botticelli angel, is perfect as Billy Budd, the innocent, trusting sailor who cannot comprehend wickedness. In him are warmly concentrated the human faith and charity that are assailed by the darkly misanthropic and malevolent master-at-arms. How this lad endures his torment until moved to strike the mortal blow that plunges his sweet and generous spirit into the cold machinery of the law. 
how, with a brave and magnanimous salute to his final judge, Captain Veer, he then accepts the heartless verdict that he must die for the unintentional deed, is a moving display of human splendour. Billy Budd, in character and in performance, is almost too good to be true. On the other hand, his tormentor, as played by Mr Ryan, is a creature of cold, sadistic fervour. He is a Melville symbol of the cruel and completely unalterable evil that endlessly runs through the world, blind and without apparent reason, like a tornado or a forest fire. Except that Mr Ryan speaks a curious brand of English for the times, he puts forth a taut and chilling picture of the demon master-at-arms. Mr. Eustonoff's performance of the hard-pressed Captain Veer, who must elevate the law over justice, is a little too petulant and soft for the full effect of this character, which must represent rigid rectitude. Captain Veer is an iron-bound stalwart, whose figure and attitude have no room for the pouting hesitation and excessive avoir du poids that, unfortunately, the actor brings to this rather stuffy role. However, Mr. Eustonoff's direction of the mutinous lot of seamen in the ship has fetched some salty performances from Ronald Lewis as a doughty foretopman, Melvin Douglas as a canny old sailmaker, John Neville as an officer, and many more. The one shortcoming of the story, as perfect material for the screen, is the fact that its conflict narrows to an intellectual point at the end. The judgment that Billy is guilty of murder and must swing, regardless of human circumstances and the audience's sympathy, is a climax that is not graphic. It is addressed squarely to the mind, and for all the verbal explanation is a little hard to accept. In comes, as a dismal letdown, a negative irony. But in other respects, the drama is as forceful as the wind across the sea. It's pretty cool, no? <laughs> That's my. That's me at the end. It's pretty cool. That's not. That's, that's not Bosley Crowther. Anyway, there you go. I thought I'd leave you with that at the end. It's some nice. It's some nice writing, isn't it? Avoir du poids. That's a French word which can be translated as heaviness or weightiness, um, and in fact, it refers to the the imperial system of pounds and ounces as opposed to the the, the metric system. So there you go. That was a word I hadn't come across before. Quite nice though. Avoir du poids. Okay, so that's it. I'm done. I'm done for another week. Um, I hope you found that interesting, diverting, thought-provoking. Um, I hope you enjoyed that time you spent with me here. Thank you very, very much for choosing to listen. And I hope you'll be back for more. If you're interested, you can throw me some love on social media. You can leave a review somewhere. You can rate, you can comment, you can share, subscribe. And if you're so motivated, you could even support this podcast financially using the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash the clear out. You can email me thoughts, requests, suggestions, criticisms, whatever, uh, at the clear out live at gmail.com. Okay. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Stay well. Mind yourselves. I'll be back next week with something different. See you. Bye. Inside.